This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you. Tonight, we begin with an episode of Dimension X, an NBC radio program. It was broadcast mostly on an unsponsored sustaining basis from April 8th of 1950 to 1951, so not a long run. The first 13 episodes were broadcast live, and the remainder were pre-recorded. Fred Way and Edward King were the directors. Norman Ross was heard as announcer. And Dimension X was not the first adult radio series featured on radio, but the acquisition of previously published stories immediately gave it a strong standing with the science fiction community, as did the voice of and the choice of well-established, respected writers in the field, Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, and Kurt Vonnegut, to name a few. Quoting M. Keith Booker from his 2004 book, Science Fiction Television, it was not until the 1950s that science fiction radio really hit its stride, even as science fiction was beginning to appear on television as well. In fact, at the beginning of the 20th century, amid the Industrial Revolution, science fiction was coming into its own. Many short stories by science fiction writers such as Jules Verne were commonly included in regular adventure and pulp magazines. In 1926, Hugo Gernsback founded the first American magazine dedicated exclusively to the emerging genre of science fiction called Amazing Stories. The pulp magazine featured stories by well-known science fiction writers, including H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, and Edgar Allan Poe, but also introduced new authors and serials to the public. The first science fiction old-time radio shows were primarily adventure serial shows intended for juveniles, co-opted with a scientific theme, mostly Buck Rogers and, and Flash Gordon, folks like that. These shows for children tended to glamorize scientific progress and featuring larger-than-life heroes. But let's leap forward a bit, if you will, to hear an episode of Dimension X entitled The Abominable Snowman. Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape. Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. You are high on the frozen slopes of a great mountain, terrified and caught in a blizzard, while the thing for which you've been hunting has suddenly become the hunter. And if it finds you, 
then for you and your companions, there can be no escape. So listen now as Escape brings you Anthony Ellis' exciting story, The Abominable Snowman. of luck was when we hired our shepherd guide, Nassang. That was in Darjeeling. When I told Nassang what we were after, he hesitated for a moment, and then he said, The studs have not come to climb Shomolongma? Oh, no. We're a little late for that. It's already been done. The other two sides and myself are here for the reason I told you. Meto Kangmi? That's right. The sides always hire me to climb the mountain with them, but never this. Are you afraid of them? I have seen one. You've seen one? Yes, many of us have seen them. Uh, wait a minute. Alan. Yeah. What's that? I'm interviewing a Sherpa in here. He says he's seen one of the things. Hey, where's Frank? Uh, we'll have to get some tobacco. Yeah. All right, come on in. I think this is our man. Nothing. This is Mr. Ferris. Sad? Hello, Nassang. Nassang was telling me about what he'd seen. Go ahead, Nassang. It has a face that is evil. And when it saw me, it uttered a strange cry and bounded away. Sometimes leaping, sometimes running with great strides. It was dusk. And after a moment, I lost sight of it in the snow. Where were you? With the French expedition. It was at 19,000 feet on Shomolungma. How far were you from it? 30 feet, uh, perhaps 35. You are sure it wasn't an ape? I am sure. There is no ape in Himalaya to make such a track. What about bears? This too I have been asked. But does a bear walk always upon its hind legs? Well, that's enough for me. Alan? Yeah, he'll do. Yeah. But if you want the job, Nassang, you're hired. You are going to try to capture a yeti? Yes. It will be a difficult thing. But I will serve with you. Yeti, wild man, Netokangmi... Abominable snowman. That's the name the natives had for the things, and Alan Ferris, Frank Davis, and I were going to try to get one. We'd all done some climbing, but climbing was secondary here. Expeditions since the beginning of the 20th century had heard of the abominable snowman, observed their tracks, and one or two white men claimed to have seen them. Great ape, bear, monkey, wild men. We didn't know. But we were going to find out. Four weeks later, we were in the Rongbuk Valley for our interview at the monastery with the Lama. The journey from our base had been uneventful. The weather was good and our spirits were high. From the Lama's window, we could see the great peak of Everest in the distance. 
Why, gentlemen, do you desire to capture Miss O'Connor? Because, sir, we believe it will be an invaluable aid in our prehistoric research. That is, if these things are in any way human. And for this reason, then, you have formed the expedition? Yes. You are all familiar with climbing? Yes, we are. You would need to be. The Yeti move at high places. Dangerous places, so my people tell me. Also, the monsoons are arriving in a short time. I understand that. Then do we have your permission to investigate in the valley and beyond? You have my permission, sir. Oh, I appreciate it. There is one point, however. I must request that no wild animal or being in this valley be shot. Our religion does not allow it. We'll respect your wishes, sir. Now, may I ask you one more thing? Of course, my son. Do you believe in the existence of Metokangli? I myself have never seen it, but I know that they live here, above the valley, on the goddess mother of the world. It is also true that at least five, and possibly more, inhabit the upper Longbook and its glacier. Thank you. Do you have porters? Our guide, Masang, is hiring them now. Yeah. I trust that he meets with good fortune. The old man, with great dignity, bowed slightly to us and we were dismissed. But I thought I saw the shadow of a smile on his lips as he turned away. And it wasn't long before I found out why. Nasang returned to us in our quarters, and his face warned of bad news. Sir, I am unable to hire any porters. Why not? They know the purpose of the expedition. They will not go. Why? They are afraid. The snowmen? Yes. They live in peace with them. They wish no trouble. They are afraid. Well, all right. It'll be rough, but we can't waste time talking them into it. The monsoons will be coming in a couple of weeks. It's not the same as climbing, Everest. We'll travel light, just the four of us. Set up a base and start hunting. All right with you, fellows? Yeah. Sure. Nasang? I will go with you. I am not afraid. Good. Well, let's take a look at the map. Now, we'll each carry a capacity load. We should be able to make this point below the glacier in two days. That's 16,000 feet. Mm. And if our abominable snowmen are in the vicinity, we've got two weeks to find them. When do we start? Tomorrow. Good. Well, that's it. Um, Paul? Yes, Frank? Uh, one thing. What do the natives mean when they say they don't want any trouble with the thing? Uh, superstition, probably. Oh, no, sir. It is not superstition. It is because the Yeti are cannibals. That is why the porters are afraid. The weather turned ugly the day we left the village. A cold Tibetan wind blew down from the west, and with our heavy packs it took us much longer than we'd thought to arrive at the point just below the Rongbuk Glacier. We set up our camp and made ourselves as comfortable as we could. The next morning wasn't so bad. There was a heavy overcast, a promise of snow, and the peak of Everest looming over us was shrouded in clouds. 
The four of us sat in the tent looking at our charts and drinking hot tea. I figured it'd be easiest if we started at the East Glacier. It's only about three miles from here, and with the weather as thinking as it is, we won't run too much of a risk. What do you think, Paul? Well, that sounds all right. What do you say we split up? Uh, you and Masang, Alan and me. We'll work up on either side of the ridge, here. And if we spot any tracks, fire two shots. Hmm? Yeah, good enough. Now, the big thing, though, no matter what, don't shoot at the thing if you do see it. Okay? Okay. All right. If we lose touch with each other, we'll meet back here at five. All right, let's get going. We'd left the base at six that morning, and the going was rough. Alan was pretty well shot by the time we got to the 17,000-foot mark. He was having a tough time breathing, and the wind had come up again. And with it, a fine, powdery snow that blinded, choked Hey, I, I gotta take five. All right. Yeah, move over here. Might cut some of the wind. Oh. Oh. Oh, we might as well start back for the base. We couldn't see anything in this anyhow. You know, right now, I don't care whether we do or not. Uh, this is good weather. Wait until the monsoon starts. No, no not me. Oh, I'm cold. I've never been so cold in all my life. We stayed in the half-shelter of an overhang for ten minutes. The wind was quieter and the snow had let up. I noticed that the tracks we'd made coming into the shelter were gone now, but we didn't have any worry finding our way back. I figured that Frank and Nassang had met pretty much the same thing on their side of the ridge, and we'd meet them at the base. So Alan and I picked ourselves up and started off. Boy, I, I thought I was in pretty good shape, but up here... Boy, I'm nothing. Ah, uh, Paul, I'm tired again. We'll just take it easy going down. You haven't got frostbite, have you? No. No, not yet, but... What? The left there. Yeah. They're not our tracks, are they? Not unless you took your boots off on the way up. What's the... Just passed by. It must have seen us. Yeah. Come on. We were looking at a set of tracks newly made in the fresh snow. And they'd passed so close to our shelter that the thing must have known we were there. They weren't the tracks of a bear or an ape, but more like a splay-footed naked foot. The tracks of the abominable snowman. We will return to escape in just a moment, but first, 30 million school children make their way back to class this year. 
There are just 10 million too many for existing school facilities. Contact Better Schools to West 45th Street, New York 19 for information on ending this menace to America's educational standards. And now, back to Escape. began to follow the track, and for a while, perhaps 150 yards, it was easy. And then the thing made a leftward traverse down a deep slope. We could see the prince clearly, angling with a sidestep, as sure-footed as a mountain goat, except that it was walking on two legs. This way, Paul. Take it easy, Al. Get any safer. Boy, that thing sure can climb. Hold up. And he dropped out of sight over the lip of the crevasse. We weren't roped together. I got as close as I dared to the edge. The loose snow crumbled away from my outstretched body. And I looked down into the blue-black darkness below, falling away into nothingness. He was gone. Finished. All I could think of was the noise he'd made when he went over. Surprised, angry, then silent. The crevasse might have been 500 feet or 5,000. Snow started to fall again. Big flakes this time and wet. I stood up. And across the gap 20 feet away, I saw the tracks of the thing continuing on and away until they became lost in the blank whiteness of the glacier. It had jumped and landed still upright on the opposite side. I went back to the base. And an hour later, Frank and Nassan returned. I told them. And we were quiet for a long time. Then... Paul, are we going out again tomorrow? Why not? I just wanted to... We should go back. It is an omen. I tell you, he was going too fast. He didn't have a chance to see the crevasse. That's not an omen. It's bad sense. Mr. Kong, we cannot be caught. We'll catch him. Oh, but there are only three of us if we had a few more men. I tell you, the thing was so close that we'd, if we'd looked up at the right time, we'd have seen it. You think I'm going to give up now? Next time we'll get it. There was no chance to get Alan out. No. You think if we went back? Listen, you think I don't want to? He's gone. I tried, but he's gone. Okay. Oh, okay. Wish that window went up. Maybe by morning. We'll try again tomorrow. It was cold that night, and somehow colder because Alan was gone. I heard Frank tossing around, and I knew he was thinking about a body broken and lonely, lost somewhere in a deep and dark place. In the morning, the three of us packed our gear, camera, food. It was a light pack. We started up again. This time to a crest above the ridge. It was tougher than it looked, and we weren't even halfway up before we had to rest. But as I looked to the west, I saw clouds boiling up. Not white, but somber, threatening. And below, 
the valley looked grim, ugly gray. And then the sun was gone. And we kept on going up. And then I had a strange feeling. It was nothing I could see, nothing I could hear, only a sensation of being watched, followed. Wait a minute. See something? No. I, I have felt it too sad. Something following us? Yes. It is Mr. Conley. How do you know? It can be nothing else at this site. There is nothing else that lives. Maybe it's curious. No, don't turn around, Frank. Listen. When we get up to the crest, you two flop down. Stay in sight of the slope here. What are you going to do? Move around the hump and watch. If it drinks, we're all together. It may come close enough to give us a chance to get it. You better watch your step. It looks nasty. I will. Now, come on. It took us another 15 minutes to get up to the crest, and then Frank and Nassang hunched down to rest. They were in clear view of the slope we just descended. I moved back out of sight and made my way toward the hump, which backed a long shelf on the north side of the crest. In a couple of minutes, I lost sight of them and of the slope. The wind had increased and the clouds had spread now to become an iron-gray canopy over the mountain. It was getting colder again. I don't think it took over five minutes to reach my lookout point. And when I did, I had a perfect view of the ground we'd covered. There was nothing there. The men were out of sight. And I waited. A minute. Two. There was nothing. Until... It came, carried on the wind, a cry, and then shots. I scrambled back to where I'd left them. And when I got there... When I got there... Frank was lying on his back. And I couldn't look at what was left of his face. There were terrible deep rents in his clothing, and... He was dead. The song lay huddled a few feet beyond, a gun in his hand. Son? Yes. What is it? What? Metal Kangmi. He came from behind us. Before I could throw the gun. And killed. Then it sprang at me. It is strong, sir, with the strength of ten men. All right. All right, can you sit up? My leg, it struck at me, my leg, broken. I shot at it, but I missed. It jumped away and was gone. Okay. We'll have to figure out a way to get you down. We were four hours from camp, and with Nassang practically helpless, it could well be four days or never. I buried Frank where he was lying, then began to work down the slope. Nassang was in great pain. He half slid and crawled as best he could. That part of it wasn't too bad. Then we were at the bottom, and there was a ledge to climb. It took well over two hours to do that, and we still had three miles of difficult terrain to cover. The stops became more frequent. Sir, leave me here. Go back. No. My leg is frozen. There is no feeling anymore. I shall not 
Live much longer. But don't be a fool. After a rest, you'll be able to go on. Soon the night comes. If we are both caught here, we both die. There will be snow, much snow. Leave me. No, we're going back together. Please, let me sleep. Let me sleep here. I cannot go on. You've got to, Nessa. No, no more. The ridge is only about a half mile. From there, it won't be too bad. No, no, let me stay. Nassan. Let me sleep. No, no, come on, Nessa. Come on, you're not going to sleep. Nassan. You'll be all right. Behind you, Sean. I turned, and for an instant I saw it outlined against the snow, crouching of medium height. It was covered with thick hair. The face was reddish and bare. A semi-human face. And it was not an ape. The thing made a tremendous leap and was gone, but I hit it. I knew I hit it. Mr. Conley, is it was he? Did you kill it? No, I don't think so. Then it will be back. It has... Sister's blood, you must leave me. No, get up. Get up. Come on. Let's go. The song. The song. Sorry, sir. Will you ask the lover to make a prayer for me? Sure. Sure, I will, Miss Hong. Give my pay to. My wife in Darjeeling. I'm sorry, sad. I died. The song. The song. darkness came, and with its shadows in the snow, every hillock, mound, became the thing, motionless, waiting. In my mind, I kept seeing it, its long arms, powerful, and the dreadful claws it must have possessed. I carried my gun in my gloved hand, but I knew that I couldn't fire it unless I was barehanded, and that meant my hand would freeze to the gun. And then suddenly, I felt myself slipping. It was a short incline, but when I reached the bottom, the gun was gone. I'd lost it. I've got to find it. I've got to find it. And I saw a glint of metal in the snow ten feet away. And at the same time, above me at the top of the bank, the thing, it stood swaying a little, looking down at me. I moved slowly. Slowly. Inch my way toward the gun. And as I drew closer, I kept my eyes looking up. But it didn't move, only stared down at me. And I thought I saw its little eyes glittering. As I thought, if the gun's frozen now, if it's frozen, doesn't fire. And I was nearer to it, near enough to take off my glove. But that moment in which I'd have to bend to pick it up, that's when it would leap down at me, tear my throat out, tear and... I had the gun and I pulled the trigger. And it lay there, 
strange and terrifying. It's blood staining the snow. And it looked at me. It looked at me. Until the sound died away. It was dead. But the eyes kept on staring. It must have been the shot that loosened the snow and ice on the ridge above. I heard the sound, and I ran. Ran! It passed me and swept on down toward the valley, the thunder of it dying in the distance. And when I went back, there was nothing there. It was buried somewhere under tons of snow. I made my way back to the wrong book village. I don't remember how. I didn't remember anything for two weeks after. But I'm alive. And I'm not going back there again. That's all I know. Or want to know. About the abominable snowmen. Escape has brought you The Abominable Snowman, written and directed by Anthony Ellis, starring William Conrad as Lane. Featured in the cast were Anthony Barrett, Pi Averback, Jack Crucian, and Edgar Barrier. The special music for Escape was composed and conducted by Leith Stevens. Next week... are a passenger aboard a submarine making its last peaceful voyage across the sea. While unknown to you, the captain has a plan, which if it succeeds will mean for you and the entire crew a fate from which there can be no escape. So listen next week when Escape will bring you Marion Mosner... And Francis Rosenwald's exciting story, The Log. You're headed in the right direction. The station is right. The network is right, too. Check all timepieces, and then check your local radio schedule. Let's have no slip-ups. Everybody wants to hear the Jack Benny Show right from the beginning, when it returns to CBS Radio tonight. This is Roy Rowan speaking. is the CBS Radio Network.
Stay tuned for George Burns and Gracie Allen next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for a visit with George Burns and Gracie Allen. They met in 1922 and first performed together at the Hill Street Theater in Newark, New Jersey. And they continued in small-town vaudeville theaters, married in Cleveland in 1926, and then moved up a notch when they signed with the Keith Albee Orpheum Circuit in 1927. Burns wrote most of the material and played the straight man. Allen played a silly, addle-headed woman, a role often attributed to the dumb Dora stereotype common in early 20th century vaudeville comedy. Now, early on, the team had played the opposite roles until they noticed that the audience was laughing at Gracie's straight lines. So they made the change. In later years, each attributed their success to the other. Burns said, We were not an overnight sensation. We were a good man-woman act, but we were not headliners or stars or featured attractions. We were on the bill with them. There would be a star or two stars and a feature attraction. Then we would come on, fourth billing in an eight-act show. Their career changed direction when they made their first film. In the early days of talking pictures, the studios eagerly hired actors who knew how to deliver dialogue or songs. The most prolific of these studios was Warner Brothers, whose Vitaphone varieties, the shorts, captured vaudeville headlines of the 1920s on film. Burns and Allen earned a reputation as a reliable disappointment act. That would be someone who could fill in for a sick or otherwise absent performer on a moment's notice. So, let's go back in time to when audiences were eating up that George and Gracie uh, a diet they were serving up. The episode tonight's in called Impressing Your Neighbors. House coffee, George. Sure, pour me a cup, Gracie. You know, Maxwell House is always good to the last <laughs> drop. That drop's good, too. Yes, it's Maxwell House Coffee Time, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. With our special guest tonight, Mr. and Mrs. James Mason, yours truly, Toby Reed, Harry Lubin, the Maxwell House Orchestra, and Bill Goodwin. For America's Thursday night comedy enjoyment, it's George and Gracie. And for America's everyday coffee-drinking enjoyment, it's Maxwell House. Always good to the last drop. Well, as we join the Burnses today, Gracie is just giving George a bit of thrilling news. George, I just found out the most exciting thing. Guess who moved from England and lives right here in Beverly Hills? Who? James Mason. No. Yes, and his wife, or as they say in England, his old fruit. Remember remember Mason in the Seventh Vale? Wasn't he great? Oh, wonderful. And just think, now he's our neighbor. We're almost close enough to hear his wife scream. (laughs) Well, why should his wife scream? Well, it must hurt when he beats her with that cane. (laughs) Gracie, he only did that in the movie. In real life, James Mason is probably very kind and gentle. Don't you dare say such mean things about him. (laughs) Mean things? Kind and gentle. That's a fine way to talk about that magnificent monster. (laughs) I'm sorry I insulted him. What a man. He's Humphrey Bogart with a broad A. (laughs) 
Sure, 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 sure. You know, some girls dream of getting a husband who'll cover them with diamonds and mink. <laughs> I'd rather have James Mason and be covered with Band-Aid. <laughs> you what? Sure. Women love to be dominated. But in all the years we've been married, you've never struck me once. You're very selfish, George. <laughs> yes, I'm a mess. Well, please try to act rough and rugged when the Masons get here. I'm going to invite them over for a visit. Gracie, you can't do that. They're reserved English people, and they won't accept an invitation from a stranger. Oh, my goodness, I feel like I know Mr. Mason. I've been using his jars for years. <laughs> It's a different mason who makes mason jars. Well, my father belongs to his lodge. <laughs> That's the Masonic Lodge, and it has nothing to do with James Mason. And while you're at it, you can also forget the Mason and Dixon line. <laughs> that I knew. Well, good, good, good. I've never seen Dixon, but Mason doesn't need a line. <laughs> wow. Wow, yeah. With those piercing black eyes and that cane, all he has to do is give you a look and a clap. Gracie, for the last time, Mason is not that type of man. He's very soft-spoken and gentle. As a matter of fact, his hobby is raising cats. You mean pussycats? No, Sam Cats, Balaban's partner. <laughs> he owns the Chicago thing. Remember? We had trouble with our laundry? Yes. Now, forget about inviting the Masons over. Uh, we have absolutely nothing in common with them. No? No. They're British and we're Americans. They're in the movies, we're in radio. Their hobby is raising cats. Ours is raising our hoopah. Uh, I hope. Uh, <laughs> well, their hobby is raising cats. Sure, they've, uh, they've written a book. The cats in our lives. I see. Well, goodbye, dear. Where are you going? Out. Just a minute. Hmm? Just a minute, young lady. If uh, you don't tell me where you're going, you're not leaving this house. <gasps> oh, George, how thrilling. You you ordered me not to leave the house. If you keep it up, you'll be just like James Mason. Yeah, I'll go get my cane. Yeah. <laughs> so, there, practice while I'm gone. I'll goodbye. Practice. Yes, goodbye. <laughs> George has no imagination. So we need something in common with the Masons. Oh, we'll have it. Yes? Oh, hello. I'm your neighbor, Mrs. Burns. Oh, how do you do, Mrs. Burns? I'm Mr. Mason, and this is my wife, Pamela. How do you do? I, um, I just got by to ask you if you've seen anything of a stray cat. No, did you lose one? Yes, my husband has a rare and valuable collection, and one of them disappeared. Really? It so happens that Mrs. Mason has quite a collection of cats. You don't say. Yes, in our family, my wife is a fancier. Oh, I don't know. You're pretty cute yourself. <laughs> I meant she's an expert on cats. Oh, you uh, mean like my husband? Yes. How many do you have, Mrs. Burns? Oh, only one. Uh, that's all the husbands they allow in this country. <laughs> I believe she was asking about cats, not husbands. Well, we, uh, we had 15 when I left the house. Of course, there may be more when I get back. Yeah, our mother cat is very popular. 
Is she expecting a litter? No, her boyfriend can't write. <laughs> they just called to her from the back fence. Mrs. Burns, when a cat has a litter, she gives birth to kittens. I don't doubt it. <laughs> oh, shock like that. Would you care to try, Pam? Thank you, James. Um, uh, Mrs. Burns, what kind of cats do you have? The kind with four legs and fur. Yes, of course. But um, do you have any Persians or Siamese? Mm, no, we don't keep people, just cats. <laughs> She's yours again, James. Thank you, James. <laughs> Mrs. Burns, what is your method of raising cats? Well, uh, we put both hands under their tummy and lift. <laughs> Righto. Do your cats have pedigrees? Oh, no, no. We keep them very clean. <laughs> James. Uh, quiet. <laughs> have your cats ever been in a show? Oh, yes. They love Mickey Mouse. <laughs> they like your pictures, too, Mr. Mason. <laughs> Pam. Uh, what do you feed your cats? Uh, uh, cheese. Cheese? Well, yes. They're too aristocratic to go looking for mice. And this way, the mice smell their breath and come looking for them. <laughs> James. No, thank you, dear. I've had enough. <laughs> Mrs. Burns, we'd like very much to have a chat with your husband. Oh, wonderful. Here's our address. Come right over. Thank you. Now we can see for ourselves this wonderful collection of cats. Oh, oh yes, the cats. Well, um, you better wait for about an hour or so. I don't think they're home right now. I suppose your husband's taking them out for an airing. <laughs> oh, I love that English accent. <laughs> he, uh, he doesn't take them out for an airing. They eat airing and alibut at home. <laughs> told the Masons that her husband has a collection of cats, Gracie now has to produce them. So she has slipped a sardine into George's coat pocket and has talked him into walking through an alley with her. Gracie, I don't get it. Why walk through an alley? We've got sidewalks. Oh, but this is so quiet and romantic. Only you could think an alley is romantic. Rita Hayworth thinks so, too. <laughs> That's a different kind of an alley. And another thing. Oh, go away, Kitty. Go away. Go away. And another thing. I keep smelling fish. Oh, well, that's just the wind blowing in from the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> it's blowing the opposite direction. Oh? Oh, well, then it's the wind from the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> that's the other side of New York. We're in Los Angeles. I know. Think how it must smell in Kansas City. <laughs> And an Altoona, too. Uh, another cat following me. Oh, isn't that sweet? Those dolly little kitties like you. Kitties? These are Skid Row Tomcats. <laughs> Coming at me from all directions. Shoot. Skats. Oh, be careful, dear. You know, I think that black one could throw you. 
Let's head for home, but fast. He's broke. There's someone at the front door, George. Will you answer it? I can't get up. There are ten cats on my lap. They're swarming all over me. Oh, all right. I'll go to the door. Oh, how do you do, Mr. and Mrs. Mason? Come right in. Thank you, Mrs. Grimes. We're so anxious to meet your husband. Oh, you love him, Mrs. Mason. He's the same type as your husband. Beats me all the time. What? Your husband beats you? Oh, he's so British. Well, um, step right this way. He's, uh, he's frolicking with, the, with his cat. Yes, I see him in the chair. He looks very distinguished with that long black mustache. Oh, no, one of the cats has his tail in his face again. <laughs> but that's my husband in his famous collection of rare cats. Really? A bit moth-eaten, wouldn't you say? Yes, but the cats love him anyway. <laughs> I meant the cats. George. Darling, look who's here, Mr. and Mrs. James Mason. What? How do you do, Mr. Burns? How do you do? By Jove, Mr. Burns, I've never seen cats so devoted to a man. Yes, look, James, they're trying to stick their heads into his coat pocket. Well, they're, they're so shy in front of strangers. <laughs> Shoo, get off of me. Get off. There seems to be a curious mixture of breeds. Pam, what would you say that gray one is? Well, it could be part Maltese, but it's difficult to tell. It's shedding its fur. Well, yes, it's part Maltese and part striptease. <laughs> well, Mr. Mason, how do you like the collection? The real cats, aren't they? I'm trying to decide. <laughs> Mr. Burns, your wife told us about your cat collection, but we never expected anything like this. You must have tamed these creatures with a chair and a whip. Wait a minute. My wife told you I collected cats? Gracie, I want to speak to you in the next room. Yes, dear. Uh, excuse me, please. Certainly. Come on. Oh, stop. Stop hanging on to me. Get away. Get away. Well, Pam, isn't that the oddest collection of cats you ever saw? Yes, but they fit in nicely with the people. Ah. <laughs> Mrs. Burns is a bit uh, eccentric, isn't she? Quite. Of course, you can't blame her. That cologne he uses would drive anyone nuts. <laughs> yes. It must be called Evening on a Live Bait Boat. <laughs> <laughs> Strange people, these Americans. George still doesn't know that Gracie slipped a sardine into his coat pocket so that his popularity with cats would impress the James Masons. Shoo, shoo, shoo. Get off of me. You back fence baritones. No, George, please. The Masons are right in the next room. Can't understand why these cats keep trying to stick their heads into my coat pocket. The world could be in there that, uh... Gracie, what is this you put in my pocket? Uh, just a cigar, dear. Oh, yeah? Well, I've looked at a lot of cigars. But this is the first one that looked back at me. <laughs> Here, look at it. Oh, how cute. A cigar with a mouth. 
It can blow out its own smoke. Gracie, this is a sardine. Really? Well, here, I'll light it for you. <laughs> you expect me to smoke this? Why not? My brother Willie works in the cannery. He smokes fish all day. <laughs> so that's why these cats followed me. You stuck this fish in my pocket. Well, darling, I wanted to make a good impression on James Mason and his wife. They're crazy about cats. Well, fine. They can have these as a present. Come on. Excuses for being so long, folks. Oh, that's quite all right. Oh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Mason, my husband has decided to give you his rare collection of cats. What? It's a gesture to welcome you to this country. We should have stood in England. <laughs> <laughs> that black one might be useful, James. You could hang your hat on its hip bone. Yeah. <laughs> Say, wait a minute. Look at that magnificent white person under the chair. Oh, he's a splendid fellow. I didn't see him before. I think he's been hiding from the others. Uh, Mrs. Mason, if you like him, he's yours. Oh, Mr. Burns, do you mean it? Certainly. Oh, I could just kiss you. Well, you better not kiss my husband. If you do, I'll kiss your husband. I didn't really mean it, Mrs. Burns. No, come on, please kiss him. <laughs> I think you meant that. <laughs> I think we'd better be running along. Yes, thank you again for this wonderful cat. Oh, carry home, Mrs. Mason, or as you English say, goodbye. <laughs> I'll carry the cat outside for you. Pam, I have an idea. Let's call the cat George in honor of our favorite American entertainer. Oh, you shouldn't do that. Why not? That George Jessel is a very clever chap. <laughs> Yes, Jessel, one of Edward's boys, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye, and thanks again. Goodbye. Hey, George, what were you three talking about out there? Nothing, dear. You know, Mrs. Mason certainly has a crush on you. I'm surprised she didn't take you home. Oh, stop. Well, she started flirting with you the minute she walked into this house. I saw her give you the double wink. <laughs> the, the, the double wink? Well, sure. She took one look at you and closed both eyes. <laughs> Yes, she adores me. Hey, George, I just dropped by to tell you that you're in big trouble. One of the neighbors says you stole his white Persian tomcat. Holy smoke. Followed me home and uh, I gave it to James Mason. Well, then you better get it back. That's a valuable animal. That's the second most famous tomcat in town. Second? I'm the first. <laughs> Gosh, Bill, I'm ashamed to ask for that cat back. You do it for me. Okay. Gee, I never thought the day had come when I'd say I wanted George Burns' puss. <laughs> come on, I'll drive you over there. I've just got to get that cat back. Well, Pam, how are you getting on with the new cat? Oh, famously, darling. I've bathed him and brushed him, and he's simply beautiful. Aren't you, George? No. He already responds to his new name. Strange that Burns should have one thoroughbred among all those mongrels. You know, I'll wager it was Mrs. Burns who collected all those battered old veterans. Why should she do that? Well, having acquired Mr. Burns, she wanted a matched set. <laughs> <laughs> Would you answer the door, darling? I want to go out in the garden and have a romp with George. Very well, dear. Come along, boy. Hiya, Jimmy. How's the boy? I beg your pardon. Have we met? 
Well, no, but surely you recognize me. I do picture work. I'm sorry, we have none to be friends. <laughs> no, I, I, I act in pictures. I'm the darling of the American screen. Haven't you seen these dimples, these blonde curls? Don't tell me you're Mary Pickford. <laughs> I'm Bill Goodwin. But enough about me. Mr. Burns sent me over to ask you if you'd return that white Persian cat. But that was a gift to Mrs. Mason, and she's become extremely fond of it. Well, I'm sure she'll listen to reason. You, you British are such fine, generous people. Uh-huh. You've always been so gracious and understanding. Oh. That's the basis of the wonderful relationship between our two countries. That traditional British love of fair play and good sportsmanship. By Jove, I like the way you talk, Mr. Goodwin. And every word comes straight from my heart. Let's continue this discussion over a cup of tea. Fine. Well, as I was saying, you really... Ooh. Tea! <laughs> How dare you insult me like that? I drink nothing but Maxwell House coffee. <laughs> Offering me tea! Can't you British take a hint? We dumped that stuff overboard 200 years ago and so... <laughs> trying to do? Start another revolution? (laughs) You'll never talk this country out of Maxwell House coffee. It's America's favorite brand. A blend of choice highland-grown Latin American coffees, radiant roasted to the peak of flavor perfection. And you want us to drink tea? You, you skinny child Latin. Come, John, Mr. Goodwin. I'm well aware of the merits of Maxwell House coffee. I think it's quite delicious and refreshing. It's too late to butter up to me now. I'm going out among people who know that Maxwell House coffee is rich and mellow. Good to the last drop. Goodbye. Bill, where's the cat? What did Mason say? Oh, George, I'm too mad to talk about it. I'm going over to the golf course and cool off. Okay. I'll talk to you over there. I'll meet you on the first tee. Tee! <laughs> Goodbye, you traitor. I wonder why he slugged me. I'm his boss. I give him a salary. Why, every week I pay him... Maybe I better give him a raise. (laughs) Meanwhile, Gracie has learned that her husband was last seen at the Masons. Convinced that Mrs. Mason is trying to steal him, Gracie hurries over to get him back. I'll get it, Pam. It may be that mad coffee merchant again. Oh, it's you, Mrs. Burns. Come in. I've come to get George. Oh, oh, please don't. I've grown so fond of him. Must you take him away? (laughs) Yes, I must. Mrs. Burns, I appeal to you. You certainly do, but I've come to get George. (laughs) Please let my wife keep him, Mrs. Burns. You wouldn't object? Not at all. If it makes Pam happy, I'll even let him sleep on the foot of our bed. <laughs> you English are broad-minded. <laughs> I'm sure James will pay, be glad to pay you for him. You you want to buy him? Yes, I'll give you fifty dollars. Why do you hesitate, Mrs. Burns? Is he worth more? No, the price is right, but I love him. <laughs> I don't blame you. He is adorable. He has such a shiny coat. Well, if you think that's shiny, where do you see his pants? <laughs> what a cute way to describe his little fuzzy legs. <laughs> you're, 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 
immediately when I gave him his bath. <laughs> you, you gave him a bath? Yes. Wow. Well, if he lets you do that, I've lost him. <laughs> He's yours, Mrs. Mason. Oh, thank you. Oh, but be kind to him. Remember, he's getting old. You'd never know it. He acts quite frisky around me. <laughs> well, it's, um, it's your first day together. He was frisky on our first day, too. <laughs> Any particular diet we should give him? Oh, no, no. Just to help him to the table and put a napkin around his neck so he won't spill food on himself. You think of him almost as a man, don't you? Well, yes, and you must, too, no matter how people laugh. <laughs> Any other instructions? Well, he's, he's used to having a clean nightshirt every week. He sleeps in a nightshirt? Always. Well, it's a sweet idea, but aren't they rather bunchy around the tail? <laughs> George smokes cigars? A dozen a day. He'd be a sensation in Vaudeville. No, no, you're wrong. He tried it. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll be going. Tell him goodbye for me. Wouldn't you like to see him before you go? After his bath, he looks so cute and fluffy. No, no, I'm going home. Just tell him to, he can stop by any time and pick up his golf clubs and toothbrush. <laughs> goodbye. Did she say golf clubs and toothbrush? Yes. Pam, we've really got ourselves a cat. <laughs> oh, Gracie, I'm home. Wow. Decided to come crawling home to me. Eh, Fluffy? <laughs> Fluffy? My, aren't we nice and clean after our bath? Fluffy? Hmm. I suppose you had a perfectly delightful afternoon. Enjoyed yourself. Yeah, I did. You did, eh? Well, I'm leaving. Why is she mad at me? I'm her husband. Her partner. Every week I divide our salary. I give her... Maybe I'd better start splitting it even. Join us again next Thursday when we'll all be back. George Burns, Gracie Allen, Bill Goodwin, Harry Lubin, and the Maxwell House Orchestra, and yours truly, Toby Reed. Good night, everybody. We're a little late. Good things. The easy way. You like good things the easy way? Then get instant Maxwell House coffee. So good. So good. True coffee flavor and fragrance because Instant Maxwell House is not a so-called coffee product. It's all pure Maxwell House coffee in instant form. And so easy. So easy. Instant Maxwell House means great coffee instantly in your cup. No fuss, no muss, no bother. Today, try Instant Maxwell House. Instantly good to the last drop. <laughs> Until next Thursday, good night and good luck from the makers of Maxwell House, America's favorite brand of coffee. Always good to the last drop. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. 
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.